Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the Beatles have had a profound impact on popular culture around the world for nearly six decades. On their first trip to the United States in 1964, the Beatles came to Florida. When it came to performing in Jacksonville at the Gator Bowl, I like to say it was in Dixieland that they took their stand about racial issues. We'll discuss Florida flags. We have no evidence of the original flag. It's only been reconstructed based on our written accounts. And remember the Tallahassee 10. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. I've gone, for tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun. Someday you'll know I was the one, but tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun. In February of 1964, the Beatles, an up-and-coming music group from Liverpool, England, headed to sunny Miami, Florida for their second appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr first appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show a week earlier, on February 9, 1964, at Studio 50 in New York City. America took notice of the Fab Four, and popular music changed forever. Bob Keeling, an Emmy Award-winning journalist and author, is currently writing a book about the Beatles and their time in Florida in 1964. As he explains, the Beatles came about at a time in which America really needed a reason to twist and shout. Right before the Beatles burst on the scene in America, JFK was assassinated. And, you know, it cast this gigantic pall over the country, you know, similar to what we're experiencing now. And I think that's part of the reason why the Beatles came on with such fervor is because, you know, people were looking for something, anything to get excited about after, you know, the tragic and horrifying end of Camelot. And with the nation sort of still being in this collective state of shock after JFK, they just had this driving force, this this joyous beat and theme to their music. It's just eternally fresh. It's hard to believe a time, and to imagine a time, when we didn't know who the Beatles were. But for America, that was roughly December of 63 into January of 64. They hit number one on the charts, and here come the Beatles in February of that year, and 64 was just a magical year for them in the United States. In early 1964, the Beatles weren't very well known in America yet, but the Ed Sullivan Show appearance in Miami Beach changed that. Their performance in the ballroom at the Deauville Hotel had a live audience of 2,600, but was watched at home by an estimated 70 million people. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, live from Miami Beach, the Ed Sullivan Show. Thank you very, very much. Last Sunday, on our show in New York, the Beatles played to the greatest TV audience 
that's ever been assembled in the history of American TV. Now, tonight, here in Miami Beach, again the Beatles face a record-busting audience. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, here are four of the nicest youngsters we've ever had on our stage. The Beatles! Bring them on! Amy Hughes is a Beatles historian who gives a presentation about the Beatles called I'll Follow the Sun, The Beatles in Florida. The interesting aspect was how people perceived them uh, the first time in February 1964. They were a quasi-unknown entity when they came here. No one could quite understand, and of course, no one had the hindsight to see what kind of impact they would have uh, in the future. So to come to Miami, first off, was a very big culture shock to them, having the freedom that they did to be by themselves almost to do these sort of relaxing things that they never had a chance to do. Everything was go, 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 being pulled and pushed in all these different directions. And certainly they had a lot of commitments when they came to Miami, namely being on The Ed Sullivan Show. The presentation of Sullivan from his early years up until the 60s was definitely sort of a entertainment showcase vaudevillian throwback. To put the Beatles into this uh, was certainly going to help Ed Sullivan in his uh, hip coolness factor. Being in Miami, definitely there had been that hip coolness factor with all of the sort of um, Rat Pack people, Frank Sinatra, Jackie Gleason, Joey Bishop, Peter Lawford, Sammy Davis Jr. That was still a prevalent thing. So to be able to showcase them in Florida, having a good time is, is a pretty interesting aspect. In September of 1964, seven months after their appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show in Miami Beach, the Fab Four returned to Florida to perform in Jacksonville at the Gator Bowl Stadium, an outdoor football arena. Before the Beatles could get to the Gator Bowl, their trip was sidetracked by a hurricane called Dora, and they found themselves stranded in Key West. Margot Winnick is a publicist and a self-proclaimed Beatle maniac from Miami. She is also a contributor to the nationally syndicated radio show Beatles Brunch, hosted by Joe Johnson and produced in Fort Lauderdale. So later in 1964, once, you know, Beatlemania is really ignited, the Beatles were due to perform in Jacksonville at the Gator Bowl, but Hurricane Dora delayed that plan. And in fact, they took a flight and went to Key West. I've actually talked to a gentleman who was in a bar the night that they had the downtime in Key West and were basically killing time. They sat in with the band. They smoked cigarettes with people at the bar, including this gentleman. While they were in Key West, apparently they had a soul-searching sort of evening that Paul later references when um, he says, did you remember the night we cried? What about the night we cried? Because there wasn't any reason left to keep it all inside. Never understood a word, but you were always there with a smile. And if I say I really loved you and was glad you came along, then you were here today. Ooh. 
that was in a song called Here Today that he dedicates. Even to this day, he plays it live, and it's for John. So Do You Remember the Night We Cried is a reference to the night that they were in Key West, Florida, waiting to go play that Gator Bowl date, but they had some downtime, and they had to take a flight and avoid Hurricane Dora. After Hurricane Dora passed, the Beatles were finally able to make their way to their Gator Bowl performance in Jacksonville. Once they arrived, they were astonished to find out that the concert they'd been booked to play was going to be racially segregated, even though the Civil Rights Act of 1964 passed a few months earlier. When it came to performing in Jacksonville at the Gator Bowl, I like to say it was in Dixieland that they took their stand about racial issues. The Beatles apparently were backstage ready to go on and hearing that the audience was segregated. And they were adamant that they would not take the stage until that was corrected and that the audience was allowed to mix. John Lennon said he'd rather return the appearance money. They did not want to take the stage until the audience was mixed and could enjoy the show. That apparently became part of their contract language going forward. That's how strongly they felt about the need to play to desegregated audiences so that everyone could enjoy the music. Titusville native Barbara West attended the 1964 Beatles concert at the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville. She's now the site manager of the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, Florida. Barbara West looks back on the concert as one of the most memorable times of her life. I was 16 years old and I was entering my junior year in high school and a group of my friends uh, decided that they wanted to go to the concert. Every, everybody was so excited um, that it was going to be in Jacksonville. This was the first out-of-town trip I was ever allowed to go on with my friends. So this was a big deal. And it was mixed company. It was boyfriends and girlfriends. We piled 10 of us lots of lap sitting and, and all. The weather was horrible. Hurricane Dora had just come through the day before and there was debris everywhere. We were in the bleachers. We were not on the ground, so we weren't real close to the stage, but the weather was so horrible. It was still bands of rain coming through, so we ended up all getting soaking wet. And there was so much noise. I mean, the girls were just going crazy. It was so loud that when the Beatles finally did come out on stage, you could hardly hear what they were singing. I would like to say right now that you've been a swell crowd here tonight, so let's keep up the good work. And it gives me a great deal of pleasure on behalf of P, the PNE and Seafront to present the Beatles! Those who attended the concert at the Gator Bowl vividly remember the screaming fans, along with the intense 45-mile-an-hour winds that blew so hard during the outdoor concert that Ringo Starr famously had his drums nailed to the stage. It was so windy, and about the only way you could tell that they were the Beatles was because of the way they were dressed. That was at a time when the Carnaby dress was a big deal, and everybody was dressed up on stage, and the guys were in their dark suits with the white shirts. But when the Beatles came out, and of course, the first song they played was Twist and Shout, 
nobody was sitting down. Everybody was standing up, um, jumping around and, and screaming. A lot of people had signs. We did not. When they came out on stage was the highlight because we waited so long. I'm really surprised that they came. We were so fearful it was going to be canceled. We made it and it was probably will be one of the highlights of my life. Just friends and music and fun. From Miami to Key West to Jacksonville, the Beatles' introduction to Florida in 1964 was unforgettable. The Doville Ballroom stage in Miami Beach, Florida, helped launch the Beatles' career, while the Gator Bowl Stadium in Jacksonville became a rather windy platform for them to stand up for racial equality. Amy Hughes. We can definitely look back and understand how they were perceived, the uh, hysteria that surrounded them everywhere they went, not only in Florida, but everywhere. However, Florida presented them with two special dreams, actually. They were able to take time out from their hectic lives and enjoy themselves for a very brief time that really, for them, could never happen again. And for them to be able to have the insight in the fall to say what they had to say about performing at the Gator Bowl with what was going on during that time period really spoke to the fact that they were not going to be censored when they spoke, which was highly unusual for that time period. Today, the Beatles are considered to be one of the most influential bands of all time. Bob Keeling. They were really, really good when they had their moment on Sullivan. They were ready for it. And they had this unique unity of, of purpose. It was one for all, all for one. But that's why all these poser bands that came later, you could argue, really couldn't measure up. You know, you can't manufacture something like Beatles. The chemistry of the Beatles, this brotherhood, was really crucial to their success. They spent significant time here. They spent historic time here. And like everything else, it seems like people gloss over Florida. And for the last 25 years, my vein as an author has been, you know, mining these pre-Disney stories that are so important. And this is another one. Four years after the Gator Bowl concert, Paul McCartney wrote a song called Blackbird, inspired by the civil rights movement. Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly All your life You were only waiting for this moment to arise John Lennon was assassinated by an obsessed fan in 1980, and George Harrison died of cancer in 2001. Nearly 60 years after their concert at the Gator Bowl, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr still make music and perform regularly to sold-out crowds. They also continue to speak out about issues important to them. Recently, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr gave statements of support to the Black Lives Matter movement. While referencing their infamous Gator Bowl concert in Jacksonville, they reiterated their decades-long call for equal rights, peace, and love. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. All your life, you were only waiting for this moment to arise. 
you were only waiting for this moment to arise. You were only waiting for this moment to arise. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find discounted books on Florida history and culture, watch our television series, Florida Frontiers, subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. You're a grand old flag, you're a high-flying flag, and forever in peace may you wave. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, Rembert Patrick first published his book, Florida Under Five Flags, in 1945. While that book remains a valuable resource, the story of Florida's many flags is a, a bit more complicated, right? Yeah, that's right, Ben. Even though, you know, that book has become the standard for, especially for elementary school students learning about Florida's history, there's a lot more to the story, and it it really does get a little more complicated. So we say five flags, beginning with, in the 16th century, the flag that Ponce de Leon would have placed here in Florida, which, you know, believe it or not, Spain didn't have its own single national flag at that time period, so historians believed it was something that would have reflected the monarchy at that time. And then we move into the second flag, which was the French flag, because in 1564, a group of French Huguenots landed in northeast Florida and established uh, La Caroline, or the Fort Caroline colony, and placed the uh, blue flag with the three fleur-de-lis on the flag. And then we move forward again to the second Spanish period. And then in, in 1821, Florida becomes a U.S. territory, so the Stars and Stripes. And then in 1845, we have the Florida state flag. But in between that time period... That's where we get a little bit complicated, and especially so in between the Spanish period, the British, and the Second Spanish period. So in 1763, Florida actually becomes a British territory. So the Union Jack flies over Florida. That's one of the five that Rembert Patrick describes. And in 1783, we begin the Second Spanish period. And it was actually during this time that you had a series of these pseudo-governments sort of moving into Florida creating their own governments, creating their own communities, and as such, created their own flags. Symbolically, flags are vitally important to the identity of a community, and they can be very, very powerful symbols. So when a community decides to exert their autonomy over a region, they create a flag to do so, to to represent that sense of control. And one of the earliest we see, especially during the Second Spanish period in the 1790s, was the Republic of Muskogee. And this was actually formed by a gentleman named William Augustus Bowles, who was kind of an insurrectionist. He was involved in trying to overthrow the the Spanish government, also fighting, in some cases, the Americans along the border uh, area. And he created his own flag. So here's another flag that flew over Florida around his territory, as he claimed it was right around present-day Leon County in Tallahassee. Later on, we get the Republic of West Florida flag, the actual western part of Florida that stretched all the way to the Mississippi, seceded from Spanish colonial Florida and created its own government. And they created their own flag at that time period. And then we move forward to the War of 1812. And there were a group of Georgians that invaded East Florida and created the Republic of East Florida and had their own flag to symbolize that. So there were other instances, at least, of where we had other individuals moving into Florida. And then in 1870, 
1861, Florida seceded from the Union. There was a series of kind of unofficial flags that were created during that time period before finally Florida's readmitted into the Union, and we get a Florida state flag in 1868. And the first 1845 state flag caused quite a bit of controversy when it was first unveiled, right? Yeah, so Florida becomes the 27th state in March of 1845, and the flag that they presented to the incoming governor, William Mosley, if you see it today, it's busy, (laughs) to say the least. In the top left corner, you have a tiny American flag, and then you have blue, orange, red, white, and blue vertical bars. And inside of the orange bar is the motto, let us alone. And that's where the controversy comes in, because at the time, the Whigs within the state legislature claimed that let us alone was an official party motto of the Democratic Party. So they said, well, we don't want that on our state flag because it represents your party. So there was a lot of bickering back and forth. It went to the state Senate, to the state House. They both passed their own resolutions, but not according to the correct procedures. So the flag itself was never adopted. And after 1845, it just sort of disappeared. In fact, that flag, we have no evidence of the original flag. It's only been reconstructed based on our written accounts. So our first state flag in 1845 is a bit of a mystery. And then again, by 1861, Florida has seceded from the Union. So it was a moot point by then anyway. When did Florida adopt the current state flag design in use today? Well, the state flag as we see today really traces its origins back to 1868. After Florida is readmitted into the Union in 1868, they design a state seal, and that seal was on a white background. So the flag itself was just a white field with a very complex painted seal that was in the middle. And it wasn't until the 1890s that Francis Fleming, who was governor at the time, argued that the flag looked like the white flag of defeat when it was laying slack in no wind. So they decided to add the red bars, the red cross, essentially the cross of St. Andrews, as they argued at that time. So in the state legislative session of 1899 to 1900, they officially adopted that. So we had a state seal on top of a white field with the two diagonal red bars that you see today. And that's essentially what exists today. When the state constitution was revised in the 1960s, they updated the seal to be a little more accurate, that actually the Seminole Indian woman that's depicted is more accurately dressed, and changed a few other things. And it was finally tweaked in in 1968. And then by the 1980s, the state legislature officially adopted the language that exists today. So in terms of proportion and all of that, it dates from about the 1980s. So it's an interesting evolution going all the way back to the 16th century, how we understand and symbolically depict the idea of Florida in the form of a flag. Interesting as always. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see some of the Florida flags we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. But should old acquaintance be forgot, keep your eye on that grand old flag. This is Florida Frontiers. In the spring and summer of 1961, groups of volunteers called Freedom Riders faced life-threatening violence to integrate interstate travel in the South. It's often forgotten that two groups of Freedom Riders came to Florida. One group of Freedom Riders traveled through the center of the state to St. Petersburg. The other group crossed North Florida to Tallahassee. 
Ray Arsenault is professor of history at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, and author of the book Freedom Riders, 1961 and the Struggle for Racial Justice. Ferris Bryant was the governor. He was from Ocala. Uh, he was a staunch segregationist, but a pragmatic politician, and he saw what was happening in Mississippi. And, uh, you know, that, he thought that was not good for business, not good for Florida's image. And so even though he wanted to preserve segregation, he didn't want the violence. And so he made a tremendous effort, frankly, to work with Burke Marshall from the Justice Department to keep the most violent, most militant white supremacists away from the Freedom Riders. And so there was no big violence. Now, he wasn't entirely successful. Um, when they got to Ocala, several of the riders were beaten and imprisoned, and uh, it was uh, not, a, not a happy scene. But they, they had to leave them in Ocala, and then they went on to, to Tampa, where it was also there was a bit of a ruckus in Tampa, but minor compared to what was happening in Alabama and Mississippi. From Tampa, the first Florida Freedom Ride made it to the final destination of St. Petersburg. The second Florida Freedom Ride bus carried an interfaith group of rabbis and clergymen. They made it to their final destination of Tallahassee, but were not warmly received. They come into Sumter and they tried to stay at the Evans Motor Court. <laughs> and the sheriff showed up and threatened to arrest them if they didn't go away. And uh, one of the white supremacists had a pickup truck with a huge rattlesnake in the back. He takes it out and shakes it at the Freedom Riders, saying, if you don't get out of here, I'm going to let this snake loose on you guys. And so it was a pretty, pretty tense as they, as they came down. They went through Jacksonville and uh, met some local NAACP activists who had been doing some local tests of compliance with the you know, desegregation. And uh, they went to Lake City and also kind of a mixed reaction there. You know, they kind of tolerated them, but let them go, but a lot of, a lot of screaming at them. And so they get to Tallahassee, and uh, they really didn't have much trouble desegregating the, the bus terminals. Following a successful bus ride, the Freedom Riders had difficulty at the local airport. A group of riders who had become known as the Tallahassee 10 tried to integrate the restaurant at the airport. When they were denied service, they staged a sit-in. Ray Arsenault. They wouldn't leave. Finally, they closed the airport at midnight, and uh, uh, they uh, went back into Tallahassee, and they came back the next morning at 7.30 and continued the sit-in until they let them eat in the restaurant. And uh, the uh, police came, and uh, they were actually on the phone with Burke Marshall in the Justice Department. He was trying to negotiate it, and the, the police just panicked and said, you've got 15 seconds to get out of here. And they arrested them all, carted them off to jail. And uh, they were convicted of uh, several crimes, um, breach of peace and violating the uh, ordinance for segregation. And, and they went before Judge Rudd, who was this infamous white supremacist in Tallahassee, and he convicted them all and gave them a tongue lashing about, go back to your own communities and fix the problems there. We're, we have no problems in Tallahassee, right? The Tallahassee 10 bailed themselves out of jail and continued their civil rights work. Over the next three years, they appeal the decisions. They, they go to the, the circuit court and then to the state Supreme Court and finally to the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, the U.S. Supreme Court would not set aside the convictions. So in August of 64, after the Civil Rights Act is passed, you know, more than three years after the Tallahassee 10 had spent their time in jail, they come back to Tallahassee and they serve several days in jail. 
and, and they're let out. And then in great triumph, they go over to the restaurant at the airport and have lunch. Ray Arsenault is professor of history at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg, and author of the book, Freedom Riders, 1961 and the Struggle for Racial Justice. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. You can find us right here again next week and listen as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Ben DiBiase. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and healthy. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.